Today's scripture is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his head his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few months ago, I was given an assignment for a continuing education program in which I'm participating. In between retreats, my colleagues and I were each to write a short essay about someone we considered a courageous leader. These so-called profiles in courage could be about someone we knew well or someone we'd never met. They could be about someone living or someone dead. We just needed to focus on a leader that we felt was courageous and talk about the leadership lessons that we learned from their story. Sounds easy enough, right? Except I didn't want to do it. I kept telling Matt, referring to it as my book report. I gotta go do my book report now. Felt a little elementary to me, I guess, a little more like busy work than something that was gonna bring me some great insights. But being the dutiful student that I am, I did it. And guess what? I got inspired. Ridiculous. I'm ridiculous. I mean, apparently my group facilitators knew what they were doing. So the person that I wrote about was named Stacy Abrams. If you don't immediately recognize her name, no problem. She's a lawyer from Georgia. She's gained national prominence by working on voter turnout and voter education for the last seven or eight years. At age 34, Abrams was elected as a representative to the Georgia legislature, and she served in that body for 11 years, uh, the last seven as minority leader. In 2018, she ran for governor of Georgia, earning the Democratic nomination in that race, becoming the first black woman in the country to run for governor as a major party nominee. And she lost. She lost the gubernatorial race by 50,000 votes to Brian Kemp, who's now the governor of Georgia. Well, Abrams ran for governor in part because of an experience that she had in high school. And I encourage you to check out her TED Talk if you want to hear her tell this story for herself. It's worth your time. 
So she arrived in Georgia as a teenager because her parents decided at that time to change careers. They decided, of all things, they wanted to become United Methodist pastors. Can you believe it? Yes, both her parents are ordained United Methodist pastors. So when Abrams was a teenager, the whole family moved to Atlanta so her parents could enroll in the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, the finest of seminaries in all the land. Now, having two parents in graduate school meant that the family had very little money, including they didn't even have a car. Stacey Abrams, though, was valedictorian of her high school class. And because of that, she, like all the other valedictorians in the state, were invited to the governor's mansion for a special party. The Abrams family, as I said, had no car. So they took the bus from Decatur, which is a little town suburb right next to Emory, and they took the bus up to this ritzy neighborhood called Buckhead, where the governor's mansion sits. And from the bus stop, the Abrams family, who are black, walked up the driveway, dodging the cars that were dropping off all the other, mostly white, valedictorians and their families. And when Abrams reached, when the Abrams family reached the security gate, the guard, having seen them come from the bus stop, said to them, you don't belong here. This is a private event. Now the Abrams family, the parents objected and the guard repeated himself. He said, you don't belong here. This is a private event. But Stacy's parents refused to back down. They argued with the guard until he finally went to go check the guest list and found Stacy's name and reluctantly he let them into the party. Now Abram says of that whole day at the governor's mansion, the only thing she remembers is that moment of encounter with the guard and how he did not want to let them in. So she decided over 25 years later to be the person who got to open the gates. That was her motivation. She thought she was gonna get to do that by becoming governor herself in 2018, but that was not to be. So instead, she took the sting of that election loss and she turned her energy toward mobilizing her community, mobilizing the people around Georgia, mobilizing people even beyond Georgia to register voters and to fight for fair and equal access to voting for all. Now, you may not agree with Stacey Abrams' politics. That's okay. I think we can learn from people who have different politics than we do, believe it or not. And I think it's hard for us to deny the impact she's had on her community and the way she's motivated and inspired others to be engaged in the political process. She's incredibly smart and she's clear and she's convicted when she speaks and she isn't afraid to say things that make people uncomfortable because what she wants is change. I think she's compelling. Even if you don't agree with her policy goals, I think she's worth paying attention to because she'll make you think. She'll make you clarify your own values. Now, people like Stacey Abrams, and there are many people out there today like her, Republican and Democrat, independent, no political party, people who are entering the political fray to make the world a better place, to give us, they give us, I think, they give us a glimpse of what it might have been like to hear a biblical prophet speak in real time. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, they often make plain some things that we would prefer not to see. They help us talk about things that we would prefer not to talk about. And number two, they aren't worried at all if they make people uncomfortable. 
those were both characteristics of the biblical prophets. Wanting people to talk about things that people didn't want to talk about and being okay with making people uncomfortable. Now, I think this is actually kind of tricky to talk about in our hyper-partisan world. And I thought about this long and hard, and I decided it's just almost impossible to find an example of someone who helps us understand the prophets who won't also get our partisan hackles raised. Because today, we identify almost everybody with a political party, and that means that automatically half of us don't want to hear what they have to say. As I was thinking about this, I started wondering, would the prophets, the biblical prophets, if they were here today, would they go on cable news to argue their points? I'm honestly not sure. But they were political. They were very political. They were trying to influence kings and religious leaders. So I don't know if they would have found cable news the best place to reach people's ears, but it's possible. If that idea of the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Isaiah going on cable news, if that makes you a little uncomfortable, I think that's good because too often we make these biblical prophets too tame. They were not tame. See, we've got a real disadvantage when it comes to reading prophetic literature in the Bible because so much of what they wrote seems designated for a specific place and time. And the distance between us and that time and place, it just it makes it easier for us to not take them as seriously. Consider the book of Isaiah from which we read today. When I tell you that Isaiah of Jerusalem was active starting around the year 745 BCE and that one of the first major events he prophesied about was the Syro-Ephraimatic War of 735 where Judah's king was almost overthrown by neighbors because he wouldn't join them in opposing Assyria, you might say, well, that's interesting, Amy. And then you're going to go right back to thinking about that text message that you got right before church. And if I told you that a few years later, when the king of Assyria, a guy named Sargon II, attacked the city of Ashdod, Israel, Isaiah, the prophet, he walked around the streets of Jerusalem naked for three years. I know! <laughs> he did it as a sign because he was trying to keep his government of Judah, keeping them from relying on Egypt as an ally. Now, you might find that more interesting, but also extremely odd. And likely you're going to consider it has nothing to do with your life at all. So I get it's a hard sell to have us dig deep into the biblical prophets. But before we toss them completely to the curb, I want us to remember that they serve an incredibly important function in the life of our faith. They did this for the people among whom they lived, and they still do it for us today. What they do is they show us the gap between how the world is and how God wants the world to be. And they do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're here in week three of our sermon series, Breath of God, where we're looking deeper at the role the Holy Spirit plays in, in the world and in our life of faith. And you might remember that in both Hebrew and Greek, the same word can be used for spirit as the word for breath. Ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek. So when we say the breath of God, that, that's not that much different than saying the spirit of God. It's a reminder to us that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is actually active through the whole biblical story, not just from the moment of Pentecost forward. In fact, if you noticed, all these weeks that we have been looking at the Holy Spirit, we have been reading from the Old Testament. 
The moment that the Holy Spirit came to those disciples at Pentecost, that was just one more chapter in the long history of the Spirit's work with God's people. So one of the major things that the Spirit does throughout the Bible is to send prophets into the world to share the word of God. Prophets, in the biblical sense, they're not fortune tellers. They don't predict the future. like They don't make lucky guesses about what might happen. Instead, they deliver messages from God. So prophets are always saying things like, thus saith the Lord, and then they share their message. Or, as Isaiah says in another chapter, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. And then he goes on to give his message. Prophets were a way for the people to hear messages from God. Sometimes those messages were for individual people, and sometimes, more often, they were for whole communities or for the nation of Israel as a whole. You remember, Israel understood itself to be in special covenant relationship with God. The people were to worship God alone and to live lives as a light to other nations. The problem was the people broke that covenant a lot. (laughs) They did things that they shouldn't do. And so God sent the prophets to help the people hear and see how far they had strayed. So in every single prophetic book in the Bible, we read words of judgment. Part of the prophet's job, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, was to help the people see reality, including, perhaps most of all, the parts of reality they didn't want to see. So, for example, Isaiah, he opens his book with some of these hard truths. In chapter 1, he says, How the faithful city, and he means Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a whore. It's like the very beginning of the book, guys. He says, she was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine is mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and runs after grifts, they do not defend the orphan, or the widow's cause does not come before them. Or then in chapter 3, just a little bit later, he says, the Lord rises to argue his case, he stands to judge the people's. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of its peoples. It's you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. Those are hard words. Those are real words. Words that were meant to help the people know the world in which they were living was not the world as God desires it to be. So that's a part of the prophet's job, but it's only half the prophet's job. The Holy Spirit doesn't just act in the prophet to reveal hard truths. It's not just about words of judgment. As we continue reading, we find just as quickly that the part of the prophet's job is also to offer hope. A major job of the prophet was to remind people how God wanted the world to be and how God had the power to make things right, to make things new, to make things whole, how God has the power to save us. So the prophetic books are full of these beautiful passages of hope, laying out for us the world as God will one day make it. That's what our passage is about today. So remember, chapter 11 of Isaiah a moment where the prophet turns toward hope, and he paints this this picture of a world that's so full of justice, so full of peace, but there's no violence in it anywhere, no pain in it anywhere. He says a leader is going to come, 
a leader is going to come so full of righteousness that the wicked, they'll just wither before him. He'll be so full of the spirit of God, he'll be amazingly wise and full of knowledge and fear only the the Lord. Now today, we don't have any leaders who fit this description, not a one. And ancient Israel had not seen one like it either. He says the leader will lead with such righteousness that the whole world around them will be transformed. So the wolf will lay down with the lamb. The leopard will lay down with the kid, like a baby goat, right? The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. We read it and think, Eh, that's too good to be true. A, a world where all competitiveness ceases. A world where people, people no longer fight and hurt and kill. A world where everyone has enough and all is at peace. That's the beautiful world that Isaiah holds out before the people as God's desire for all creation. So this is the juxtaposition of what the Holy Spirit does through the prophet. Through the Holy Spirit, the prophet lays out a future that we can hope to have in God's timing, a future, a world that God will bring about. And at the same time, the prophet helps us see the immense gap between that future of God and our present reality. That's what the prophet did for the people of his time, and that's what he does for us right now. Yesterday, Matt and I did some yard work. Anybody else do yard work yesterday? It was a beautiful day. One of the things we did is we went and bought mulch for parts of our garden that we've re-landscaped. We spent $80 on mulch, on wood chips, you know, because it looks nice. And the gardeners will say it keeps moisture in and it holds down weeds. I get that, but mostly we bought it because it looks nice. That's why you buy mulch. And then later in the afternoon, I was on social media and I saw a few videos coming out of Gaza this week. They were videos of children bereft because their homes were being bombed. One of them, a little girl, was 10 years old. She said, what can I do? I'm 10 years old. What can I do? Now, there are not any easy answers to the mess of Israel and the Palestinians, but I think we can all agree that children deserve to live in, to live without the fear of being bombed. But that's not how the world is. Not in Gaza, not in Israel, not in many places around the world. Instead, our world is such that I get to go and spend $80 on mulch, and some people can't provide for security and food for their children. And so I read the words of Isaiah 11, and I feel again how tremendously far away we are from that world where all is at peace and everyone has enough. Can I fix it? No, I can't fix it. God has to be the one to fix it. But I also don't ever want to lose the conviction that things are not right. Things are not right as they are. And so I'm so grateful for the words of the prophet to remind me of the gap between now and the future that God wants for the world. I want the Holy Spirit to help me read these words in the scripture and have it make me more compassionate and more generous and more grateful. 
this week, I want to encourage you to take some time to feel that gap and do it by reading some more of the words of Isaiah. See in his book, you don't have to read the whole thing, it's long, but just read some parts of it and see how he moves back and forth between the reality of the world and God's promised future. And then meditate today on our own reality and pray for God to make what is wrong right. Pray for those who suffer. Pray for the Holy Spirit to inspire us all toward justice and peace. Thanks be to God. Amen.